morning. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. So, for those of that you have been, those of you who have been here the past couple of weeks, thanks for sticking with me. I know it's been sort of long. We've started a series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. And I don't know if you remember, but a couple of weeks ago when we started, I said, hey, I want us to take the whole sermon together as a whole. Like before we start breaking it up into pieces, look at the whole thing, the way that Matthew has recorded Jesus' teaching all as one big section. And I was going to try to do like a one-week overview introduction, um, and I didn't accomplish that. That one-week overview took me two weeks. So we did that two weeks ago and last week. But then I had said after the overview, I wanted to come back and set the sermon in the context of Matthew's gospel. Uh, the, you know, it, this is chapters 5 through 7, so there's a lot that comes before it. And so that was what we were supposed to do last week, but we're going to do that this week. Um, but it is going to require like another big chunk. So I'd like to do one more week where I'm getting us oriented to where the Sermon on the Mount falls in the Gospel of Matthew and, and some things that I think are really significant to helping us see what Jesus is teaching us and what Matthew wants us to see as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this way. And so we're going to do something, or I'm going to do something bold today. Just brace yourselves. We're going to try to do all of Matthew 1 through 4. So that's where we're headed. So I hope that your seat backs and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions because we're taking off. Um, but there, there are reasons for this. Two things that we say a lot here when we're studying the Bible that I think are really helpful to you um, to keep in mind during your personal Bible study all the time when you're trying to help other people encounter God in the Bible. We talk about the Bible being one big, continuous, connected story. And I think that this today, maybe as much as anything we do, will help us see some of the connection between the whole Bible. And then we always say the Bible's about God that God is the subject, God is the main character, that the main purpose God has for us when we're reading the Bible is that we would see who he is. He's revealing himself to us. And so we're always asking this question, what does this teach about God? And before we jump into each piece of the Sermon on the Mount, which, Lord willing, we're going to start doing that next week, I really wanted us to connect it to this one big continuous story and also to see what Matthew has taught us about God, and specifically about God the Son, who Jesus is in these first four chapters before Jesus starts teaching. Because I think that seeing who Jesus is in chapters 1 through 4 is really, really significant for understanding what he's saying in chapters 5 through 7. So that's why I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do today. I think it's worth it, but here we go. Let's pray together, and we're going to sprint through four chapters. And I promise you, if I look up there and we're running over, I'll do what I did a couple weeks ago, and we'll cut it off. I won't keep you forever today, um, but I actually think we might be able to pull this off. We'll see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us by your Spirit from your Word as only you can. Open up the truth of your Word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. Father, I ask that right now your spirit will be the master teacher and that he will give us spiritual eyes to see who Jesus is and that you will be creating 
that new heart in us that you promise in the new covenant and that your spirit living in us would soften our hearts to love Jesus as you show him to us, to trust him more, to exalt him and glorify him and worship him and to follow him with our entire lives and everything in this church. And so, Father, I ask that you will be doing that type of spiritual work, the type that only you can do during this time as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you want to turn to Matthew 1, we're going to make it through one verse, then I'm going to take a detour, a 2,000-year detour. Does that make you hopeful that we're going to get done right here? Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, one of the things here, two years ago at Christmas, and if you want to go back and listen to the discussion we had, but two years ago at Christmas, we studied this genealogy. And I pointed out how weird it is for anybody to start a book with a genealogy. Like, typically speaking, is this not the worst introduction in the entire world? You know, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph and his brothers, da 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 father of, father of, father of, David, Solomon, all the way through. Except Matthew is doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is really intentional, and he gives us so many different clues to what he's doing if we slow down and listen. So, even though it seems really weird, it's so weird that it gets our attention. Like, nobody would do this accidentally. There's a point to it. So he starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And the first thing to realize is once God inspires the New Testament to be put together, these are the very first words in the New Testament after the Old Testament has ended. You know, you've got 39 books in the Old Testament from creation all the way to Malachi when Israel has been exiled. And, and God has spoken to his people and created this nation of Israel, and they've been his. But that, that's the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, starting with Matthew up to Revelation, you've got 27 more books. Those 66 make up our Bible, that what we believe that God has inspired and given through human author, authors, but inspired by his Holy Spirit so that we would know him. And the very first thing that Matthew does when we come to the New Testament, first words of the New Testament, just and see this, this is why we teach the way we do. Not because we've got a strategy for studying the Bible. Not because we said, hey, this would be a good approach. We came up with this idea, let's teach other people to do this. It's not why we do it, but because the Bible keeps telling us this is what the Bible is and how we should study the Bible. So the very first thing Matthew does, as soon as the New Testament starts, he points us straight back to the Old Testament. And he shows us how Jesus is connected to the entire Old Testament story. Do you see that in the very first verse? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah, do you, does everybody know, have some idea what this word is? It's a Hebrew word. There's a Greek translation of it that is Christ. When we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, that's the same word. It's just the Greek version of this Hebrew word. Both of them in English mean the anointed one or the chosen one. And all throughout the Old Testament, the kings of the Old Testament were anointed as king. You know, when they would pour oil on their head and say, you're going to be the next king. And there was this prophecy and promise and idea among God's people that there was going to be an ultimate anointed one. One that God had promised and cho had chosen and was going to send who was going to be the king. 
the great king, the Messiah, the chosen one. And the whole Old Testament anticipates the coming of this person. And Matthew comes right out of the gate, and he's like, I'm about to tell you about that person. 4,000 years of history in the Old Testament, from the time of Adam till the time that it ends, right here, when we're coming here, 4,000 years of history, anticipating this moment, and Matthew, from his first words, is like, what I'm about to write about is the fulfillment of all that. And then he clues us in two more ways. He calls Jesus the Messiah, then he calls him the son of David and the son of Abraham. And I just I wanted to make sure that you saw why those are so significant when Matthew is connecting Jesus back to the whole Old Testament story. And so I grabbed this promise. God made a lot of different promises to Abraham, but I grabbed this one out of Genesis 17, 3 through 6, just to see when Jesus is the son of Abraham, what Matthew's pointing to there. This says, Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. So the promise that God's making to Abraham you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And so God promises Abraham that he's going to create entire nations out of Abraham's descendants. And among those descendants, there are going to be kings and rulers who come from Abraham. And Abraham's the first of the Jewish line of Israel. And so Matthew connects Jesus all the way back to this promise that this would have been 2,000 years before Jesus. This promise that God made to Abraham. And he's already saying, Jesus is in the line of Abraham, son of Abraham, descendant of Abraham, fulfillment of these type of promises that God made to Abraham. Then Jesus is the son of David, and so I grabbed kind of the biggest promise that God made to David. That's in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And of course, in the immediate context of Second Samuel, we see that one of David's sons, Solomon, does become king after him. He builds the temple, and there was, there was an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in Solomon, but there was also a bigger secondary fulfillment, like the ultimate fulfillment that was still to come in this, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established before me forever. And so when Matthew connects Jesus to David, He's saying, this is, Jesus is also a descendant of David, a son of David. And these promises, these would have been made about 1,000 years before Jesus. So with Abraham, promises 2,000 years before Jesus. With David, promises 1,000 years before Jesus. And Matthew, again, is cluing us in right from the beginning. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. This is God bringing about what he said, and specifically, 
this great king who will have this eternal kingdom, this kingdom that lasts forever, a kingdom established by God, who will, and he will reign forever on his throne in fulfillment of the promises that God made to David. And so in the very first verse of Matthew, Matthew is already, like, if we're listening, he's shouting to us this entire story, this thing that God's been doing for 4,000 years of human history and that he's had recorded in the entire Old Testament and all the promises and all the covenants and all the prophecies and all the things he said and all the anticipation of this person who's going to come. Matthew's like, I'm about to tell you about him. That's who Jesus is. And I want you to see that he's connected to all of that. So let me start in, in, just, in a way, the simplest way I know how, and I'm going to give you the actual physical genealogical descent of Jesus and show you. We start with Abraham and we trace it down through David and eventually we get to Jesus. But it's not just a genealogy. It's, in a sense, the entire history of everything that God has promised his people and that God's been doing for thousands of years leading up to this moment. So, if we're clued into that, if we're listening, let's pick back up. And then as we run through these chapters, I'm just going to stop here and there. And I'm going to keep, we're asking, what's this teaching about God? But what we're asking specifically is, okay, if Jesus is this king that God has promised, if Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one who is fulfilling all the promises that God has made to his people, what does Matthew tell us about Jesus as that type of king? What type of king is Jesus? What are the things we should see about Jesus in these first few chapters that clearly Matthew is pointing to and highlighting and wanting us to see when he's saying, this is who Jesus is. Make sure you see Jesus. Right? That, from verse 1, he's like, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. He's like, my whole, my whole book's going to be about him. Right? My, the reason I'm writing is that you'll see who Jesus is. If you're not asking that question over and over and over as you go through Matthew, you're missing his point. And then specifically, he's like, and Jesus is the king, the Messiah. So as we go through Matthew, what type of king? What, what are you showing us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the type of king that Jesus is? So that's what I'm going to ask this morning. Now here we go. I won't stop again and go 2,000 years after one verse. We're doing good so far, I promise. All right. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, first of all, we see the connection there from Abraham to David to Jesus. That was the first thing Matthew clued us into. Now, the second thing he does that's really abnormal, and we're not going to spend nearly as long on this as we did a couple years ago, but you're welcome to go listen to the Christmas sermon that we did on this genealogy. We said it's really abnormal to start your book with a genealogy. Well, the second thing that's super abnormal is during this day and age, you never mention a woman in a genealogy. They just trace it from father to son to son to son to son to son to son. But four times, Matthew finds need, is led by the Holy Spirit to mention women. And the four women that he mentions, if you were going to mention women, these are the ones typically if you're trying to say, hey, the Messiah of God who is the king of kings and the greatest and the holiest and the one you should most respect, these are the four women you would not mention. Like if there's anybody you were going to sweep under the rug and ignore and pretend these things didn't happen and this stuff isn't in the Messiah's history, it'd be these four women because... Judah, the father of Perez, whose mother was Tamar. This is the first one that's mentioned. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Her husband died. She was supposed to get to marry another one of Judah's sons, but Judah lied to her, didn't keep his word, and then eventually she dresses up like a prostitute and tricks Judah into sleeping with her, and that's how these children come about. It's a really, really scandalous story. And Judah is the father of all the kings of Israel. Like this is every single king of Israel has this in their history. And instead of ignoring it, instead of whitewashing it, instead of like, hey, we don't ever talk about that again, Matthew's like, I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to intentionally remind people this is part of the story. And in case you think that's not what he's doing, the next time he decides to take a little segue and include a woman whose mother was Rahab, Rahab is the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho when God's people are coming into the promised land to, to conquer it and, and enter for the very first time, she's the one that hides the spies and God rescues her and her family and delivers her and makes her part of his people. But she is a Canaanite prostitute when we first encounter her. She ends up being the mother of Boaz, which we did Ruth right before Christmas this year. We did the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a Moabite, a whole other scandalous story. The Moabites aren't even supposed to be in the temple because of their history. But Rahab to Boaz, to Obed, to Jesse, to David, do you see how closely these two non-Israelite women are connected to this Israelite king? And we're just a couple of generations away there. So the Canaanite prostitute, the Moabite woman, and then one more that gets mentioned. David was the father of Solomon, which out of all of David's sons that God could have picked to be king, he picks this one. And Matthew, he doesn't even just say whose mother was Uriah. I mean, it was Bathsheba. He reminds us of what happened here. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, and Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men, like one of his greatest warriors in his army. And David has an affair with Bathsheba, and then to try to cover it up has Uriah murdered, and yet 
the, the son that eventually God gives David and Bathsheba, God chooses to be the king that follows David. And so these four women, there's two things to notice right here that they all have in common. They're all non-Israelites. They are not, they are not descendants of Abraham. They're not of Jewish blood, and yet they're included in Jesus' family. And they also have really big scandals surrounding their lives. Things that if you took the biggest names in the history of Israel and the biggest names in the genealogy of Jesus, the ancestors of the Messiah, they had these scandalous stories surrounding them. And Matthew, it's like Matthew's intentionally saying, I want you to know this Messiah that God has been promising, this son of Abraham and son of David, he's not just the king of the Jews. All of these non-Jews, these non-Israelites, they're included in his family. And also, he's a king of people who have horrible scandals in their past. He's a king of people who everybody else would ignore and want to forget about and want to, like, let's push them away and let's, let's, let's forget they ever existed. And he's like, this king brings them to light. And so just the type of king Jesus is right off the bat here, Jesus is the king of the nations, not just Israel, bigger than that. And another way to say it, the king of all people. And then Jesus is the king of scandalous sinners. And as we get past the genealogy, I think the next things we see will keep emphasizing. You'll see a lot of these truths repeated in these first four chapters for emphasis, but just that is the thing that stands out most in that genealogy. Matthew summarizes back in verse 17 like this. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And you may be wondering, why does Matthew emphasize that? Why does he organize it this way, 14, 14, 14? Um, if, I, if I clue you in and say, hey, think in terms of Roman numerals, can somebody tell me what that number is? 12, thank you. They're letters to us, but to the Romans, they also had numerical value. You know, uh, let's have fun. You may tell me what that is. Yeah, good. Fast. Um. <laughs> What's that? Oh, come on. Hey, 1,200. I'm just making these up right now. That is right, though. 12. There's no significance to these. 66, 1,274. All right. The point is, we get the idea of letters having a numerical value. We don't use that number system anymore, but we still know it. If you have a really old clock, you may have it on your clock. You know, with this up at the top, and something like that. Anybody have a clock like that? My mom still has a clock like that hanging right above their couch, and it and any time that I have ever slept out on that couch, it drives me nuts. I've taken it off the wall and like put it under a pillow before. And every time I'm back on that couch, it's back on that wall. Love you, Mom, if you're listening. Um, so here's what's going on with 14, 14, 14. 
this letter in Hebrew is this, is, has this numerical value. This letter has this numerical value. The name David, in Hebrew, they don't write the vowels. So David is DVD, which is 4 plus 6 plus 4. John? <laughs> 14? 14 is the number of David. And so Matthew, just one more time to his Jewish readers, like, hey, in case you didn't get it from the very first verse, if you don't understand what I'm doing, I'm going to organize the whole genealogy so every section of it screams at you, David, 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 son of David, son of David, son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the one God promised. This is the one God promised. This is the one God promised. So that's what's going on in this verse. He's like, just in case, and you know what he's really doing? I really think this is for you and me. If you're the type of people who skip the genealogy when you're doing your Bible reading, I'll give you verse 17 so you get the main point. If you're like, yeah, 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 son of son of son, he's like, hey, David, 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 that's the point. So that's what 17 is doing. Jesus is the greater son of of David. And if you were to read the Old Testament and see all the promises that come from that and all the expectations of who's going to come as this king who's a descendant of David, Matthew's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. So, as we keep moving here, pick back up in verse 18 with me. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, just hear the emphasis there again, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And now here's where we, in a sense, shift gears from yeah, there's going to be a, a human descendant of Abraham. We've traced him. A human descendant of David. Father to son to son to son to son to son. That's true. But now Matthew clues us into a whole other level where Jesus is a spiritual king. A new kind of king. A kind of king that we haven't seen before. God isn't just walking out into the sheep fields and finding this shepherd David and saying, I'm going to make you king and your son will be king and his son will be king and his son will be king. It's not just that this time. God is saying, this king comes from me. My spirit, the spirit of God himself is the source of this king. And so, Yes, a descendant of these physical kings, but also more. Right? The greater includes the lesser here. He is a descendant of the physical kings. He is a descendant of the national Jews. But he's also a spiritual king, a heavenly king, a king who has come from the Spirit of God himself. So there's more going on here than what they were anticipating, more than any of us would have dreamed. God is doing everything we would have thought and more. And something else. So Jesus is a spiritual king, a new kind of king. And then she, talking about Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus 
is the king of sinners. If he has to save his people from their sins, what's that tell you about his people? They have sins that they need to be saved from. His people are sinners. Jesus is the king of sinners. Jesus is the king who saves his people. And also this name Jesus, the reason that's connected to he will save his people from their sins, what, what Jesus literally means is the Lord saves or Yahweh saves, the name of God that he reveals about himself in the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh saving. This is the way that God saves his people. He is the king that God is sending by his very spirit to save his people. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the first thing is, this is from the book of Isaiah, which would have been about 700 years before Jesus is born. So we've already seen the promise to Abraham 2,000 years ago, and the promise to David 1,000 years ago, and now the prophecy through Isaiah 700 years ago. And do you start to see, like, just as a side note, I hope you see, well, when we stand up here and say, hey, the Bible's one continuous story, you've got to listen to the whole thing to understand the parts. Do you see that we're not just saying that? that the Bible itself is saying that the Bible is trying to show us that, trying to tell us to study it in that way. And so this prophecy from Isaiah, several things here to see about Jesus. Jesus is who God promised. This time, 700 years ago through Isaiah, he prophesied that this person would come. But then also, Jesus is, now we go to a whole other level, They'll call him Emmanuel, which Matthew's kind to translate that one for us. What does that mean? What's it mean? God with us. So Jesus is, is who? God. Jesus is God with us. So now we've gone from, hey, Jesus is the most important human king you can imagine the human king that fulfills every promise and prophecy God's made, to, well, no, Jesus is a spiritual king who comes from the Spirit of God himself to know when Jesus is here with you, that is God with you. Jesus is God. I mean, do you see what Matthew is building in this first chapter when he's saying, I want you to see who Jesus is? When you hear his teaching in a few chapters, make sure you realize who he is, who this person is who's saying these things. So Jesus is who God promised. Jesus is God with us. And this, to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, as we keep reading, just watch how many times Matthew comes back to that in the next few chapters. I'm not going to write Jesus is who God promised or Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy every single time we see it, but watch how many times he does it from here on out. So the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. So here you go again. Jesus being born in Bethlehem, this is another fulfillment of prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And again, I know there's lots of things we could look at in this section, but right now I just want you to see this. Magi, which this is wise men, really wealthy, really significant, important, people from the east. And so just notice again, not Jews, not from Israel, other nations, other peoples, but that God has spoken to, revealed to, led them to Jesus. And they come specifically for this reason, to worship Jesus. He's no more than a two-year-old boy right now. And these really wealthy, rich, wise, significant men led by God to come and worship him, right? To Get back down to it. Bow down and worship him and give him the best gifts that they have, gifts fitting for a king. And so this time, Jesus is the king of the nations. We're seeing that again. Early in Matthew, he's already hit this twice. But even more, Jesus is worthy of worldwide Worship. And I alliterated that for you because I want you to remember it. <laughs> Jesus is worthy of worldwide worship. Like the, the richest, wisest people you know come from a faraway land. Like other people, other nations, not even part of Israel, come and find this boy and they treat him like a king. They worship him and they were led by God, like a supernatural star, bringing this place, fulfillment of prophecy that God had given hundreds of years earlier, all because Jesus deserves this kind of worship from the whole world. Jesus is the king of the nations and he deserves worldwide worship, not just from Israel. Yes, from Israel. But he's more than that. He's bigger than that. He's greater than that. So Jesus is worthy of worldwide worship. Picking back up in the story, verse 13. When they had gone, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. There it is again, another Old Testament prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so and think about that one really quickly. Here's Herod, 
selfish, self-centered king wanting to protect his power, willing to kill baby boys two years and younger just to ensure that no one's going to grow up and be king instead of him. And God uses the evil and the sin and the selfishness of Herod to run Joseph and Mary and Jesus into Egypt so that when he calls them back out of Egypt, he's fulfilling a prophecy that was made hundreds of years earlier. Herod, a pawn in God's hands. Herod, in his evil, selfish intentions, helping to fulfill prophecies that God had given centuries earlier. That's who God is, and that's who Jesus is. In the midst of man scheming, kings raging against him, God's still keeping his promises. God's still fulfilling his prophecies. So, so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, headed to chapter 3 now. That's the end of infancy and childhood of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Now we fast forward about 30 years, picking up in chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And remember what we've seen so far. Jesus is the king that God has promised. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that there is going to be a kingdom established that lasts forever and ever. And now John shows up and he's declaring, repent for this kingdom is at hand. The king is here and he's starting to set up his kingdom and you need to repent, which implies something. You are in the right relationship with this king. Hey, repent is you've got to turn around. You're headed the wrong way. You're headed away from him. You're living like you're the king or somebody else is the king or something else is the king. And you need to turn around and come and face this king in the right way and humble yourself before him and repent. And you need to be in right relationship with the king. And so, again, Jesus is the king of sinners. Like the, the message to everybody as soon as Jesus is on the scene is, hey, you're a sinner and you need to repent. You aren't right with this king. Speaking of John here, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So here we've got more fulfillment of prophecy. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John is here getting, the, getting everybody ready for the king, preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, which right here, right? The Jews, God's people, very religious, the most religious of the Jews and God's people, the religious leaders. And they get, they get the harshest message from John the Baptist. Like he's talking to everybody, repent. And there's all these people repenting and confessing their sins and he baptizes them. And then he turns to the religious leaders. He's like, who warned you to come out here? And don't say just because you're descendants of Abraham that you're okay with this king. You're not. Jesus' kingdom isn't one of physical descent. It isn't one that nationality or race or religious credentials or the respect of men or human accomplishments, none of that makes you right with the king. As a matter of fact, the people who trust most in that, the people who look best to the world, may be the ones who are in the most trouble with the king. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. God can create his people, his family, out of whatever he wants. He doesn't need you. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so here again you see this is a spiritual king and a spiritual kingdom with spiritual power. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus is a king with great power and authority in the spiritual realm. Also, Jesus is a king whose judgment of sin will be awful and terrifying. Like John is warning these people, hey, the king is on his way and he's setting up his kingdom. And here's what happens when he does. All the people who aren't right with him all the people who haven't repented and come back to him and, and seen him as king burned up like chaff with unquenchable fire. Either in his kingdom, gathered with him into his barn, or burned up with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came. John's preparing everybody, and now Jesus comes on the scene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is the King who is the Son of God. Jesus is the king 
who pleases God fully. The next story shows us just how significant this is. Then Jesus, this is chapter 4 now. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, notice right here. What did God say in a voice from heaven? At the end of chapter 3. The, the last words we hear God speak. This is my Son. Right? The Father declares something about the Son. And now here shows, the devil shows up. And what does he do? I'm going to cast doubt on what God just said. If you are the Son of God. It's not enough that the Father just spoke. You need to prove it. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to us. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It's also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. And what I want you to see in that part of the story right now, Jesus is the king who conquers Satan. But even more, Jesus is the king who trusts his father. Jesus is the king who is a new kind of human. And the reason I say that, I hope you hear the echoes here of Jesus in the wilderness compared to Adam and Eve in the garden. That God spoke to them as well. Like the beginning of humanity, he speaks to them. And then Satan comes in and starts whispering deception, trying to undermine God's word. And when humanity began, they don't listen to God. They don't believe God. They let go of God's word and they listen to Satan instead. And that's how the whole mess happens, right? They listen to Satan instead of listening to God. They believe that what Satan is saying will be more satisfying and rewarding to them than what God has promised them. And all of humanity falls with them when they don't listen to God and they take the fruit and they eat it and sin enters the world. Well, here Jesus is now and Satan's doing the same thing. God has spoken and Satan's trying to cast doubt about what God has said. But Jesus, unlike Adam and unlike every one of us who have followed from Adam, Jesus does something that nobody else, no other human in the history of the world has done. He listens to his father and trusts him perfectly. He keeps believing his father. He clings to his father's word. And Jesus is ushering in a new kind of humanity. Some people say it this way. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Right? 
Jesus is the Adam who conquers Satan. Jesus is the Adam who trusts his Father. And so Jesus is ushering in a humanity that is in right relationship with the Father, believes the Father, clings to the Father's Word. And the thing is, even in a greater Adam and Eve were in the garden paradise and had everything they needed. And they couldn't listen to their father, wouldn't believe their father. Jesus is in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, weak and alone, and he listens to his father and he believes his father. There's never been anybody like Jesus. Jesus is ushering in something brand new. His kingdom is a different kingdom than the world has ever seen. He's a different king. He's a different type of person. Leaving the temptation scene, pick it up in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, now here's what happens in this world to the people who are faithful to Jesus' kingdom really, really often. Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, they're not the same. You're seeing how different they are. And the kingdoms of this world are so opposed to Jesus that when you're faithful to Jesus and his kingdom, this world will oppose you. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way, this is nations, not just Israel. right? All peoples. There we see it again. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus is the king who brings light to those in darkness. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for The kingdom of heaven has come near. And so make no mistake, Jesus is a king who calls people to repent. But also make no mistake, this means that people who are sinners and are far from the king and and are away from the king can turn back and come back to this king. They can, he's calling them to repent and come back. Jesus is a king who accepts people who need to repent when they repent. Jesus is a king that doesn't just say, oh yeah, you're so far gone, I'm done with you. Jesus is a king that says, you're so far gone, repent and come back to me. Be part of my kingdom. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and now here we go, he saw two brothers Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Nobody, not not wealthy, not prominent, not religious leaders, not well respected. Just nobody's in their world. And Jesus says, come, follow me. I'm going to call these type of people into my kingdom. I'm going to build my kingdom with this type of person. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I'm going to make you prominent in my kingdom. I'm going to make you the type of person in my kingdom who catches other people for me, who brings other people into my kingdom. At once they left their nets and followed him. Left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And I'll just pull out of that real quickly here. Jesus is the king who is worthy of absolute allegiance. Jesus calls you and you leave your nets and you leave your boat and you leave your family and you leave your entire life if that's what he calls you to. Jesus is worth more than your job, your career, your possessions, everything that you have built your life for and lived for until that moment. Jesus is worth all of it. Jesus is worth more than your family. Jesus is worth more than the familiarity and the comfort of being at home. Jesus is worth all of it. When Jesus says, follow me, Jesus is better than everything you leave behind. That's the type of king that he is. When Jesus shows up and calls you to follow him, Jesus is saying, I'm worth it all. Let it all go to follow me. Jesus is the king who's worthy of absolute allegiance. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And just so you know, this is like the intro verse to where we're about to get. Matthew says Jesus is doing two main things in his ministry, teaching and healing. And so this is almost the end of chapter 4. When we get to 5 through 7, he gives us an example of Jesus teaching. Right? Like, I want you to see what he was teaching. Well, if we kept going in chapters 8 and 9, he gives us healing story after healing story. So examples of him healing people. And actually, most of the rest of the book alternates like that. It'll be a chunk of teaching, healing. Chunk of teaching, healing. So Matthew's saying, here's the overall thing he was doing. And for a big portion of the rest of my book, I'll show you examples of him doing that. He teaches and he heals. So Jesus is the king who teaches about his kingdom. It's really clear what he's teaching about. And somehow, don't miss it, this kingdom is good news. His kingdom is good news. And you think about some of the things we've heard so far. If you're not right with the king, it's unquenchable fire for you. If you're trusting in your religious accomplishments or your worldly status or that that he's going to be opposed to you, that all of you are sinners who are far from him and need to repent, that doesn't really sound like great news in some ways. But Matthew says, no, he's teaching the good news about his kingdom. And we'll come back to that in a minute. And then Jesus is the king who heals. Healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. I mean, diseases... Demon-possessed, paralyzed. You see other examples in there. But make sure you see Jesus has authority and power over disease. Lost my screen. There we go. Uh-oh. Did all my notes go away? There they are. <laughs> Jesus has authority and power over disease, demons, disability. He's a king with power that nobody's ever seen before. 
brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, so here we are. We made it. Now, really quickly, I mean, do you see this list? For four chapters, Matthew has said, see who Jesus is. See how great Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the nations. Jesus is the king of all people. Jesus is the king of scandalous sinners. Jesus is the greater son of David. Jesus is a spiritual king. Jesus is the king of sinners. Jesus is the king who saves his people. Jesus is who God promised. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the king of the nations. Jesus is worthy of worldwide worship. Jesus is a king with great power and authority. Jesus is a king whose judgment of sin will be awful and terrifying. Jesus is the king who is the son of God. Jesus is the king who pleases God fully. Jesus is the king who conquers Satan. Jesus is the king who trusts his father. Jesus is the king who is a new kind of human. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Jesus is the king who brings light to those in darkness. Jesus is a king who calls people to repent. Jesus is the king who's worthy of absolute allegiance. Jesus is the king who teaches about his kingdom and it's good news. Jesus is the king who heals. Jesus is the king who has authority and power over disease and demons and disabilities. And now all these people are starting to follow this king and they're coming to him and he looks at this crowd and like, okay, now I'm going to tell you about my kingdom and about the type of king I am. And here's, I mean, you think about how great this king is, the picture that you're getting of this king. And I tell you in my mind, like you expect him to turn around and be like, let me tell you how great my kingdom is because of how great I am. And here's what it means to be in my kingdom. You better be the greatest. You better be the best. You better be the highest and the holiness and the most accomplished. I want the most powerful. I want the people who can do the most for me because I'm worthy of that. That's not at all what he says. The greatest king to ever set foot on the face of the earth, the king who is God himself, looks at these crowds and just, this is all we're going to do today in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the very first words he says. This is what your king is saying to you about being part of his kingdom. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because I'm going to give my kingdom to them. The ones who are spiritually bankrupt. The ones who don't have enough. The ones who don't have what they need. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to know why Matthew said he was teaching good news about the kingdom? Because Matthew could look at you and say, if you are broken... This is your king. He has come for you. If you are spiritually poor, this is your king. He has come for you. If you have failed and fallen and fall short from God, this is your king. He has come for you. This is a king who comes and says, when you are poor in spirit, I will open my arms to you and I will welcome you into my kingdom and I will share my kingdom with you. And it makes absolutely no sense at all from a human perspective. 
it seems so backwards. <laughs> like when you set it up for this king to be this great, and the thing is, his kingdom is that great. When we keep reading the rest of these chapters here, this teaching, the end of this very same chapter, chapter 5, he gets to the end, he says, be perfect therefore, because your Father in heaven is perfect. Like that is the standard of his kingdom. Like he shows up and he says, nobody's good enough for my kingdom. But I accept people who aren't good enough. Nobody can get in. But I let people in who can't get in. And the difference is not, do you measure up or not? Nobody does. The difference is not, are you good enough or not? Nobody is. The difference is, do you admit it and do you believe your king and do you accept his offer of grace and humility and faith? Or do you keep trusting in yourself and trying to qualify and trying to prove that you're enough? But this is a king that you can't earn his kingdom but this is a king who will give his kingdom to people who can't earn it, right? You're poor in spirit. You can't buy it. You can't afford it. He's like, but blessed are you when you know that's who you are. When you stop trying to buy it, you stop trying to afford it, and you come to your king and you trust your king for who he is. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I will give my kingdom to those people. Listen, you've never seen a king like this. The world has never seen a king like this. It seems backwards. But let me tell you why it seems backwards. Because the whole world's backwards. The whole world is the opposite of what God made it to be. And the king is showing up and saying, I'm going to set things right. I'm going to show you how it really is. The reason it seems backwards to you is because you're backwards. The reason it seems backwards to me is because I'm backwards. And the king is saying, repent, turn around. Stop living backwards. Look at me. Focus on me. Come to me. Trust me. And I'll let you in my kingdom. But you have to see the type of king that he is to hear what he says right here. And so that's it for today. See Jesus. See who Jesus is. When we read these words the next six weeks or eight weeks and you realize that this is who's speaking, that this is what he's saying to you about himself and about his kingdom, make sure you remember who this king is. Be in awe of him. Worship him. Trust him. I promise you, if you come to these words and you try your hardest to live them out and you aren't in awe of Jesus, you aren't trusting him and worshiping him, this sermon will destroy you. It will break you to pieces and you will never live up to it and you will never be able to put yourself back together. But if you come and you see who he is and you worship him and you trust him and you turn to him, it'll still break you to pieces because you need to be broken. You need to be humbled. You need to know it's not you. But then he will reach down and he will say, blessed are the people that I've broken to pieces. Blessed are the people who are humble before me because they know how poor in spirit they are. Blessed are you. Now I will pick you up and I will welcome you into my kingdom. My kingdom belongs to you. He's saying blessed are the people who I do for them what they can't do for themselves. And then I do in them what they can't do for themselves. 
That's the promise he makes to you. The one who came from the Spirit of God. The one who's conceived by the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God descends on him. God the Father speaks his promise over him. says, this is my son. This is God with us. God himself coming and saying, I will live in you. I will be with you so you can be with me. I'll set up my kingdom in your heart so that you can be in my kingdom. It's the greatest promise that God has ever made. He makes it to you, scandalous sinner. He makes it to me, scandalous sinner. He makes it to people who could never, ever deserve it. He says, this is what I will give you if you will repent and trust me and come to me. I will welcome you into my kingdom. You can never get into the kingdom of God on your own. But Jesus will bring the kingdom of God into you by his grace. I pray that we see him that way. And I pray these next weeks we study that way. And so we're going to worship right now. Because this is who Jesus is. This is what God is doing. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then if you want to come pray with somebody about something God's saying to you or what he's teaching you right now, this is the time for that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for who Jesus is. Thank you for how great he is and how gracious he is. Thank you that he is mighty, but that he is gentle with us. Help us to see him in the fullness of who he is. And may our hearts melt before him in faith. And may your kingdom come in our hearts, in our lives, in this church, and in your world through us. Father, please do this spiritual work by your spiritual power. In the name of Jesus, amen. Stand with us and sing. Worship, come and pray if you need to.